1: Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the January 18th, 2021 edition of IMRU Radio Magazine, the world's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio show, out front and out loud since 1974. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Tonight, we present our third show of the new year, and hopefully— It's a potpourri strong enough to cover the stench of democracy on fire. In celebration of Martin Luther King Jr. Day, we salute the queen behind the king, Bayard Rustin, his gay associate, who organized the 1963 march on Washington. And we even talk to Bayard's surviving partner, share a commentary from our friends at Outcasting, and an audio essay from a senior hear-me-out storyteller. But first, We'll journey with Sonali kohat car of Rising Up with Sonali to Cape Town, South Africa to speak with author Mark Gavisser about his book on the global backlash against LGBTQ rights.
2: Mark Gavisser now joins me from Cape Town to discuss his new book called The Pink Line, Journeys Across the World's Queer Frontiers. Welcome to the program, Mark.
3: Thank you for having me, Sonali.
2: So first, um, how much progress have we seen in equal rights for LGBTQ people around the world, in a way that you can compare to struggles of other communities for rights, has it been faster than other movements?
3: So, Barack Obama said when he came out as a supporter of marriage equality in the United States that no social movement has moved such a as that for he was speaking about gay rights, and I think he's right. Something quite extraordinary has happened in the last two decades globally. In that something that was previously not spoken about in many, many parts of the world has become a somewhat explosive topic for conversation. And as a consequence, partly because of the power of the digital revolution, because of mass migration, because of the way people move so quickly, a notion about LGBTQ equality has really caught fire very quickly globally as people have been able to go online and find community, find ideas, find solidarity online, and have then sort of worked to download these ideas into their local environments with very mixed results. But yes, I mean, if you look at how many countries in such a short space of time have moved to make same-sex marriage legal. Now, already there are about 10 countries in the world who have granted transgender people the right to self-determination which means the right to choose for themselves what their gender is without having to undergo any kind of external certification. I mean, such things were unimaginable a generation ago when I was coming out in the 1980s or even the early 1990s.
2: And we, of course, have to remind ourselves that the flip side of it is that lives were on the line, rights were violated, lives were lost, right? The price that movements have paid for equality and equality that's not, of course, even fully granted, but that there's been progress on has been quite high, right?
3: You use the word backlash and it's entirely the appropriate word. What's happened is, is that, it, as I said, a, a somewhat explosive global conversation has been ignited and issues that weren't previously discussed are now in the open. And inevitably, this has caused fear, this has caused panic, and this has caused backlash. So, for example, the first story I write about in my book is the story of a couple who held a public engagement ceremony in the Central African country of Malawi. And this became sort of front-page news. And the next thing, the police swooped in and arrested these two, and they were sentenced in a Malawian high court to 14 years hard labor for carnal knowledge against the order of nature. Now, what's very significant about this case is that until they came out and declared their love publicly for each other. This law was never used against two consenting adults. So suddenly there's a foment in society as a new group of people claim rights. A new group of people take to the streets, often it's cool to take to the streets, where there's a clampdown on any sort of civic action. So in countries like Russia or Uganda, LGBTQ communities and movements are at the forefront of claiming rights among minorities. And what would happen in these countries, particularly in Russia, in China to a lesser extent, the authorities clamped down on these LGBT communities claiming their rights as a way of showing the broader population that such claim for rights was really not tolerable in their authoritarian societies.
2: Because we're here in the United States, I know for my audience, it's a very important issue about how Christian conservative fundamentalists from the United States in particular have played an outsized role in the backlash against LGBTQ rights, particularly on the African continent. Can you expand on that? And I know you write about that in your book.
3: So it is absolutely true for a kind of right wing political homophobia by the moral majority, by people in the United States, back to Anita Bryant, specifically to kind of wage a culture war against a sort of secular, quote-unquote, permissive society. Now, what happened in the United States? You look at the um, opinion polls at around the time that Barack Obama decided to support same-sex marriage, and there's just an extraordinary shift in American society where this suddenly became a non-issue. The battle was lost, the cultural battle around gay people was lost in the United States. This had two consequences. Culture wars began to be waged over transgender. rights. But meanwhile, right-wing evangelists needed new fields to till. And it so happened that this was happening at the same time as a generation of African leaders, political and clerical, were looking for ways of gaining power, uh, not only in their own countries, but in the global church community. So this began in the Episcopalian Anglican Church where Africans were able to use the issue of ordination of gay priests and their opposition to it as a way of becoming a serious global force within the Anglican movement. Now, why is it important to tell the story that way? Because I think while it is correct that right-wing Americans have exported homophobia to Africa or exported a certain kind of political homophobia to Africa, that doesn't mean that Africans aren't homophobic themselves and that they don't have their own ideas. And one of the things I write in my book is that to say that homophobia is an American export To sort of denies African agency in the same way as to say homosexuality is an African export. We Africans, no matter what the color of our skin, I happen to be a white African, but white or black, we Africans, like all global citizens in this digital age, take the ideas that work for us, download them and indigenize them. But yes, you're absolutely right. Particularly in Uganda, a certain script for how to gain to grow power politically by using homophobia played off a, an American evangelical right-wing playbook.
2: Tell me about the frontiers uh, that you explore in your book because they're quite geographically diverse. Of course South Africa because that's where you are and then other uh, nations uh, in Africa and then you even go to uh, Russia, Mexico, Israel. I do. Um, it's, uh, so and you... India. And India, yes, your your uh, <laughs> your final chapter. So um, final what chapter. were some of the similarities that you found in the struggles, in the progress and the backlash? I mean, maybe that's too wide a question. So let me first start with asking you, where were the places you explored and why did you choose those places to go to?
3: You know, I go everywhere, but I absolutely wanted to understand the way it was a global LGBT rights or LGBTQ rights and what effect this movement was having in different parts of the world. So I chose places where I felt a pink line was being staked very clearly around LGBTQ rights in one way or another, where because people were defending these rights or attacking these rights, queer people themselves, queer people themselves, were sort of finding themselves on the frontier. And in that way, I write about South Africa and particularly the story of that Malawian transgender woman, it turns out, who was arrested once she was pardoned, she came to South Africa. I go to East Africa, to Uganda, because um, there was such a a powerful political homophobia in Uganda. I go to Egypt because I was fascinated in the way the Arab Spring created space for queer people, the way queer people came out on Tahrir Square in the Arab Spring, how they claimed public space in Cairo, and then how that space was shut down when General al-Sisi held his coup d'etat and wanted to... Assert a certain kind of strong man identity, show Egyptians that, um, that the chaos of the Arab Spring was over, the way he did it was by clamping down on queer people. So Egypt is really interesting to me for that reason. In Israel and Palestine, a pink line is traced over the green line, which separates Palestine and Israel. So on the one side of that line, you have a country, Israel, which supports gay rights as a way of saying. Look how different we are from those horrible Arab people who are so repressive. And Israel is, in fact, accused by its critics, including myself, of pinkwashing its human rights record with regard to Palestinians by promoting gay rights. So that's what happens on one side of of the pink line, green line in, in Israel. On the other side, you have Palestinians who come to see LGBT rights as an Israeli weapon being used against them. So you can imagine how Palestinian politicians and freedom fighters feel about LGBTQ rights, given that. Now, my question in Israel and Palestine, as everywhere, is what does this mean for queer Palestinians? And in Israel and Palestine, I tell the story of two couples, one in Ramallah and one in Tel Aviv, who are are mixed. One is Jewish and one is Palestinian. So from there, I go elsewhere. I go to Russia because um, there, the pink line is traced so firmly over the old lines of the Iron Curtain, if you want. And on the one side, you've got Europe saying we are promoting equality for all people. And, and in a way, this is what makes us civilized. And on the other side, you've got Vladimir Putin, or you've got Viktor Orban now, or Andrzej Duda in Poland, who are saying what makes us different from Europe is that we don't tolerate this kind of perversion. And we need to put up a barrier against these decadent, secular, neo-colonial ideas coming from the West. And they use queer people to do that. So the way a pink line is drawn in Russia is really interesting to me. And I tell a very tragic story there of a transgender woman who lost custody of her son because a court found that just by being a parent, she was promoting gay propaganda to the sun. And promoting gay propaganda to minors in Russia is illegal. So I could go on, but those are some of the cases. Wow.
2: So finally, where do you think the future lies? I mean, and, and also, do you feel that the attacks on the LGBTQ community are even raised in a strong enough manner when movements fight back against these conservative authoritarian leaders. I mean, it's one thing for the community to fight for its rights. It's another thing for all people who believe in progress, who believe in equality, who believe in human rights, to include the attacks on LGBTQ folks in their struggle against authoritarianism.
3: You know, there's a terrible vicious cycle that unfortunately has been activated in pink line politics Over the last two decades. And this cycle is whenever people like us in the so called West support LGBTQ rights in a place like Russia or in a place like Egypt, then it's just so easy for the other side to say, you see, this is a Western thing. These are Western values, and and the West is trying to invade our our society and contend with its decadent ideas. And the only way of kind of stopping that vicious cycle, I think, is for indigenous movement in favor of the rights of all people to grow within these societies. And in a way, I think India is a a very interesting object lesson in this, because because what happened in India was that the movement to decriminalize homosexuality in India, which was a very powerful movement in the early years of the century and was ultimately successful after a long battle, um, worked in two ways. On the one hand, it's a part of the global village. This is an India rising moment. We are modern, we are, we are part of the world, we are part of the global village. This is why we embrace this. But they also said, we have certain values and traditions and histories as Indian people. We can go back and look at our Vedic texts, which are all about tolerance. We can go back and look at the iconography on our temple walls which have amazing examples of gender fluidity. We can look at the writings of our Ambedkar and our Nehru and how they spoke about the importance of people, everybody having rights. And the other thing the Indian movement did is is using these strategies, the Indian movement developed really powerful allies, parents, um, religious leaders, um, people in business, Bollywood, and all of these movements sort of supported the rights of LGBTQ people in India. And it, had, it made a huge difference. And if that kind of movement could happen in other parts of the world, it would make a difference as well. It's way harder in places where there's this really viciously homophobic Christianity or Islam. It's way harder in places like Russia, where there's such a powerful politics around defining yourself against the West. But the solution is for these, for these movements, not to pretend that they have nothing to do with the rest of the world because we're all global citizens, but to find local roots and local traditions, local histories, and to build themselves out of those. And and those local traditions and local histories are in every society. I can talk about how in South Africa there's long been a tradition of traditional healers being transgender or gender non-conforming because somebody in a male body who behaves in a female way might be perceived to be inhabited by a female ancestor. In the Yoruba tradition of Nigeria, there are amazing gender-fluid deities. These are very powerful places to start.
2: Well, I want to thank you so much, Mark, for joining us today and giving us uh, such a a wonderful uh, analysis of what's happening globally around this issue. Best of luck to you with your book. So much, Sonali. My guest has been Mark Geviser, author of numerous books, including his latest that we've just been discussing, called The Pink Line, Journeys Across the World's Queer Frontiers. I'm Sonali Kolhatkar. We're online at risingupatsonali.com, where you can sign up for our daily newsletter, find our audio podcast on iTunes and Spotify.
1: Don't go away. We'll be right back after this quick break.
4: Stellar athlete Babe Diedrichson, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Mastering an entire roster of sports, Babe Didrikson was a celebrity in her day. In a 1932 track and field championship, she entered eight events and won six of them, setting records in the 80-meter hurdles, high jump, the javelin, and baseball throw. Then she set world records in track and field events and earned three medals in the Olympic Games in Los Angeles. In 1934, she turned to golf, going on to win 55 professional and amateur tournaments with a record 11 wins in a row. While married to professional wrestler George Zaharias, Babe toured with close companion Betty Dodd. The three of them eventually lived under the same roof. Dodd once said, We always had a lot more fun when he wasn't around. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Mary Gay Hutcherson. Hello, I'm
5: Pandora Box and you are listening to I Am RU Radio Magazine.
2: I am RU.
1: Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray and you are listening to I Am RU Radio. The 1963 March on Washington helped create a new national understanding of the problems of racial and economic injustice it brought together demonstrators from around the country to share their respective encounters with labor discrimination and state-sponsored racism and it was organized by a gay man
6: nobody knows the trouble
0: I'm Nancy Cates. I'm the co-director and co-producer of Brother Outsider, the life of Bayard Rustin, who was best known as one of the chief advisors to Martin Luther King Jr. and the architect of the 1963 March on Washington, which at the time was the largest demonstration ever held in the history of the United States. It was the culminating event of the civil rights movement. And the place where Martin Luther King gave his I Have a Dream speech. And so people tend to remember that day only about the speech. But our film is about trying to find Byrd Russell, this gay African-American civil rights hero, and take him out of the shadows of history.
6: Although he was arrested 23 times for nonviolent protest, it was a different charge that pushed him behind the curtains. In 1953, Rustin was arrested in Pasadena, California, for a homosexual activity. Originally charged with vagrancy and lewd conduct, he pleaded guilty to a single, lesser charge of sexual perversion, as consensual sodomy was officially referred to in California back then, and he served 60 days in jail. This was the first time that his homosexuality had come to public attention. He had been, and remained, candid about his sexuality, although homosexuality was still criminalized throughout the United States.
0: That was the reason he had been hidden from history, because he was gay. But the thing that really got me was he never stopped. He had a 60-year career as an activist. He started when he was 15, and he didn't stop until the day he died. And the commitment that he showed as an activist to all his beliefs and his values, and to trying to change the world to make it more in line with his values, I thought it was just an unbelievable thing for the rest of us to think about.
6: Bayard Rustin devoted his life to a push for civil equality in all forms. He even spent three years in jail during World War II as a conscientious objector and traveled to India to study Gandhi's method of nonviolent protest firsthand. Then in 1955, a seasoned Rustin met a young charismatic preacher from Alabama.
0: He went down to Montgomery when Dr. King had just started organizing the Montgomery bus boycott. And Dr. King had studied Gandhi but didn't know anything about how to organize a direct action campaign. And it was right after Rustin had been arrested in Pasadena on the sex charge. So the other pacifists didn't want him there teaching Dr. King because he was considered tainted because he had been arrested on this gay sex charge in Pasadena, California only three years before And there was actually a meeting held in New York City with 30 people to decide whether or not Bayard Rustin should stay in Montgomery because the people in New York who were trying to help this nascent civil rights movement in the South wanted his expertise there, but they didn't want him to taint the movement, which was so new, that they could see the potential for that movement. And he, Rustin, could see it very clearly, that this had to become a national movement and this was a way to really start to attack Jim Crow in the South. So they needed his brilliant mind, but they didn't want his gay identity.
6: After instructing a young Martin Luther King on how to lead the famous bus boycott in Montgomery, Alabama, Rustin became the chief organizer of the 1963 Civil Rights March on Washington, D.C., the stage for King's I Have a Dream speech.
7: I remember about 5.30 in the morning, I was out on the mall, and the press was surrounding me and I was saying, Mr. Rustin, Mr. Rustin, what's happening? And you said there were going to be a quarter of a million people in our house, scarcely a half dozen here. I remember taking out of my pocket a blank sheet of paper and taking my watch out of the other pocket. I looked at my watch in the blank sheet of paper and I said, gentlemen, everything is going according to Hoyle. <laughs> and uh, I was terrified that people weren't going to show up.
8: I am glad to report to you that the official count
6: is that we have over 200,000 people and patriots. I now bring to you the executive director of the
8: March on Washington, the man who organized this whole thing, Mr. Bayard Rustin.
7: <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen. The first demand is that we have effective civil rights legislation, no compromise, no filibuster, and that it includes public accommodation, decent housing, integrated education, FAPC, and the right to vote. What do you say?
6: And before I'd be a slave,
7: 25 30 years ago the barometer of human rights in the united states were black people that is no longer true the barometer for judging the character of people in regard to human rights is now those who consider themselves uh, gay homosexual lesbian oh, We are all one, and if we don't know it, we will learn it the hard way.
6: We
1: don't overlook the importance of Dr. King's work, especially on the celebration of his birthday. But after the D.C. riots of January 6th, it's important to remember when a quarter of a million people gathered in our nation's capital in peaceful, nonviolent protest, and the man who brought those values to the movement. A few years ago, Bosch Bodhi was fortunate enough to sit down in Bayard Rustin's New York City apartment for a talk with his surviving partner. I- So why
5: don't you tell me your name? My name is Walter Nagel. I am a 62-year-old white male. I live in New York City and my time is pretty much devoted at this point to preserving the legacy of Bayard Rustin and promoting information about him to the larger community, educating people about him. Will you tell me who Bayard Rustin was? Bayard Rustin was a significant figure in the advancement of the democratization of the United States in the 20th century. And that's a very general and a broad definition. Most people remember him as the organizer of the 1963 March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, where Dr. Martin Luther King gave his very famous I Have a Dream speech. Bayard was 51, 52 years old at that point in his life, and he had 25, 30 years of actively organizing prior to that. He wasn't just involved in African American civil rights issues. He was involved in what we think of nowadays as human rights issues before that term was really in uh, common nomenclature. He was working in anti-colonial movements abroad over in Africa. He was over in India during the end of the British colonization of India. He was working against the proliferation of atomic weapons. So he wasn't sort of a one-issue person but the large umbrella issue was the whole issue of making the world safer and providing rights to all people all over the world. How did you meet Bayard? I met Bayard in 1977 in Times Square, kind of the crossroads of the world. And at that point, I was thinking of relocating to San Francisco. This was in April. And I was waiting on the corner to cross the street and go over to the store, and Bayard came along, and we were both standing there, and we just kind of looked at each other, and <laughs> lightning struck. I made it to the store. I got my newspaper, but I never made it out to San Francisco. And, you know, we were sort of dating, spending a lot of time together, weekends together for the first year or so. And then I pretty much moved in with him in his apartment. In New York City? Yeah, right here in this apartment that we're sitting in. Yeah, this is where we lived together for the 10 years that I was with him.
8: Does your work now involve any sort of outreach?
5: I work very closely with the makers of the documentary film, Brother Outsider, The Life of Bayard Rustin. We do a lot of appearances together because it's one thing to be talking to a group of people about someone, but when you have the visual and the audio images of that person that you can work with, it really gives the audience much more of a flavor and an idea of who that person actually was. The film came out in 2003, so it's almost 10 years old. And, you know, documentaries don't normally have a very long life but there's something about Bart's story that I think people find inspiring. And over the last 10 years, you know, during Black History Month, during Gay Pride Month, there would be showings of the film and we would make appearances doing Q&As or being on panel discussions about it. But in the last couple of years, it's been picked up as a diversity training tool in a lot of corporations and law firms and they will have like a diversity event and they'll show the film and they'll have a discussion. And one of the things about this film is because of Bayard's many identities, his many hats, if you will, Now he was African-American, he was gay, he was involved in various social movements, it's an opportunity to bring people to the same table that might not always be there. And so it really provides an opportunity, I think, for people to have dialogue that would not normally be engaged in those kinds of discussions. So I think it opens up a lot of doors. The film's also being shown in a lot of schools. It's being used in the, in the California curriculum, mainly in the high schools. It's really getting Bayard's message out there, but also the larger message about living your truth, being who you are, overcoming obstacles. I mean, he overcame tremendous obstacles during his life to become who he was. And I think it's inspiring in that way. I mean, it's not a film about a perfect man. It's not a film about a saint. In that way, I think kids can look at it and see, this is a hero. This is somebody I could become as opposed to looking at a film about someone else who shall remain nameless. But, you know, that person was so perfect, I could never become that person. This is somebody that had the same struggles that I have. You know I'm going to ask you to name that person. (laughs) (laughs) I think that people have a tendency, and it's not the person's fault, it's largely the culture. I mean, the culture likes to create these heroes, these idols, not even heroes, idols, people that you kind of worship, you know a lot of entertainment figures, people like that. And I think um, it's interesting, in the the latest book that came out about Bayard, it's a collection of his letters. In one of the letters, he says something to the effect that they're doing to Dr. King the same thing that they did to Gandhi. This was after King died. They're turning him into a figure of veneration, a figure to worship, as opposed to an inspirational figure. So, you know, I I would say, you know, someone like Dr. King, certainly someone like Gandhi, people didn't think of these people as saints, and of course they weren't, they were very human. And I think as historians do their research and write books and things about it, these people and their human frailties come out, and I think that's all to the good. I think it's healthier. But you know, I think there's something in human nature that kind of wants gods. We've created a god, if you will. And in some ways that's not necessarily a bad thing, but I think you want people that can inspire you and to guide you along the journey, not show you how weak or how imperfect you are. We also have a tendency to sort of deny certain things, too. And if we don't think of people as human and capable of making mistakes, if you will, or making errors of judgment, if you kind of hold them to this perfect standard, then you're going to be disappointed, and one of the ways of dealing with the disappointment is just to kind of push it aside and deny that it ever happened. <laughs> to a certain degree, um, some of that used to happen with Buyer too in some quarters. But um, I think um, it's important to accept your leaders with their faults as well as their leadership abilities and their positive aspects. You really you have to embrace the whole person.
3: What are some of the things and ways or obstacles that Bayard had? And i also
5: like for you to tell me some of the ways that he is really inspirational to people. Bayard had baggage, if you will. When he first came to New York, he had a brief flirtation of affiliation with the Young Communist League. Because at that time, the Communist Party was really one of the few organizations that was dealing with the issue of racial discrimination, segregation, racial injustice. They had a committee to... Um, End discrimination in the military. And in the early days of World War II, the Communist Party was against World War II. And so they were out there agitating people to resist, you know, service, do that kind of thing. And that was consistent with Bayard's own beliefs. But then when Germany invaded the Soviet Union, they just did it about face, like overnight. And they told Bayard to disband his committee to end discrimination. And he felt that, you know, this was. Uh, unwarranted, untrue, if you will, not faithful to the reasons that he joined the League and so he, he just left. Another thing was he was a draft resistor, a conscientious objector during World War II. And World War II, we always think of that as the good war, it was the fight against Hitler and Nazism, and so taking that kind of a position was not very popular at the time. And of course the third thing was the fact that he was gay, he was homosexual. And he was arrested on a morals charge in 1953 out in Pasadena, California.
6: Morals charge?
5: Well, what they used to call back then morals charge, lewd vagrancy, that kind of thing. He was discovered in the backseat of a car with two guys, like, I don't know, it was like, I think, one or two in the morning on a back street. And, you know, he was arrested, and he did time in the local jail. And so when people wanted to attack the movement, if Bayard was any kind of a visible presence... They would kind of go for the jugular. They would go for him. And it's, they would, you know, here's this commie pinko fag leading the civil rights movement organizing these demonstrations. And they got away with that for quite a number of years. But as far as overcoming the obstacles, Bayard was someone who was very strong. He had a very strong sense of identity. He had tremendous personal courage. He was out there in the 1940s, sometimes by himself, sometimes with three or four other activists going into the South and riding on trains and buses, going into restaurants, being arrested, and really risking their lives. I mean, they could have been lynched. And so he had a really strong sense of himself and a strong sense of standing up to evil, if you will. And so he was not discouraged or he was not defeated by these continuous attacks. Where he was disappointed in the fact that the leadership Including Dr. King, did not support him. You know, when these threats came to light, they would say, okay, well, we got to ditch rest them for a while, or we got to send them into the shadows, or whatever. So he would kind of disappear off the, off the scene for a while. But then when the 1963 march came, Strom Thurmond tried the same thing. It was about two weeks before the march. He got up on the Senate floor and read into the Senate record, you know, Byert's arrest record and all of this stuff. And that was the time when the civil rights leadership, under the leadership of A. Philip Randolph, who was really the dean of the civil rights movement, that was the time when they rallied around Byron. Mr. Randolph was kind of telling people to step into line here, if you will. It was two weeks before the march. The tremendous organization had gone into it. It was going to happen one way or the other. It was like a train coming down the track. There was no way to really turn it around. And so finally, the united leadership, you know, with Mr. as their Spokesman, came out and made a statement on behalf of Byard's character. And because of that, you know, it kind of eliminated the opportunities of people to do that kind of thing in the future. You know, it pulled the rug out. And I'm not going to say that people didn't try it. People did try it. But at that point, it was like, you know, all of this stuff, it's out there. It's in the national news. It's on the front page of the newspapers. So that's it. There's nothing more to be said about it. So they united around him and supported him as the deputy director of the march, and things moved forward. So what would you say were some of Bayard's greatest accomplishments? I guess if you had to say one thing, you know, you would say the March on Washington. And it was an accomplishment. I mean, people look at the March on Washington, and they always associate it with Dr. King. You know, Dr. King gave the greatest speech on that day, and possibly the greatest speech of his life. There were many other people that spoke that day. Bayard spoke or read the demands of the march that day. But what you need to think about is Washington at that time was just pretty much a southern city. It was a segregated city. There were not a lot of places where African Americans could stay, eat, do that kind of thing. I mean, people were terrified of the march. Nothing like that had ever been seen before. The Kennedy administration was lobbying and working against it. They finally had to just give in to it. And cooperate with it, but they were terrified. Businesses closed down, certainly all of the liquor stores in Washington area were closed that day, and people left the city because they were afraid. We think of the I Have a Dream speech, which was really the last speech of the day, I think, but what would have happened had violence broken out? That speech might have never been delivered. And so it was because of the masterful organization of Byron that really gave the platform, gave the opportunity for that speech to be delivered. So I think you know that was a, truly a great accomplishment. But I think more importantly, he was largely responsible for showing Americans a way to nonviolently petition your government, whether it be your local government or the national government, to organize nonviolently, to be out there and demonstrating, and to achieve gold. He'd gone over to India and studied with the heirs of Gandhi after Gandhi was assassinated. And he really learned, I think, the mechanics and the ideas behind really bringing large groups of people together. That was the main thing that he really offered to Dr. King. I have a dream. I got a dream.
1: This wasn't the only time IMRU has interviewed Walter Nagel, but according to our producer Steve Pride, it's his favorite. Next, we'll take a quick break. Don't touch that dial.
4: Babe Zaharias, the Texas tomboy, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Born Mildred Diedrichson in 1911, she went on to excel in every sport she tried from track and field to bowling. Taking the name Babe from the baseball star Babe Ruth, she was named All-American in high school basketball three years in a row. In the 1932 Olympics, she won two gold medals. She was even named Woman of the Year six times. Babe married professional wrestler George Zaharias and took his last name. Honored on a red 18-cent U.S. postage stamp issued in 1981, she's pictured in a dress holding a loving cup. Babe was diagnosed with cancer in 1953. After surgery, she staged a miraculous comeback and went on to win her third U.S. Open. Three years later, however, cancer finally defeated her. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Mary Gay Hutcherson. Hi, I'm David Sedaris, advising you to listen to the longest-running homosexual radio program in Southern California. I am, are you?
2: I am, are you? I am, are you?
1: Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray, and you are listening to I Am, RU Radio. Dating while you're young can be fun, exhilarating, and awkward all at the same time. But straight teenagers can talk with their friends and hopefully their families about what they're experiencing. They get affirmation from those around them, and their confidence in themselves grows. Next, Vivian from the Outcasting team shares
9: her thoughts. This is Outcasting Overtime from Media for the Public Good, creator of Public Radio's LGBTQ youth programs. Hi, I'm Vivian, an Outcasting youth participant. One of the guys on the outcasting team is bisexual. Let's call him Tom. He has a gay friend we'll call Eric. Eric was pretty closeted. He wasn't out to his parents or in his school and just a few friends knew he was gay. He was in a relationship but after several months, he and his boyfriend broke up. He needed someone to talk with about it but obviously he couldn't talk with his parents so he went to Tom but Tom didn't really know how to help. We talked about this during an outcasting production session and it got us thinking about how important it is to have friends and family you can confide in, like a support system, and how many LGBTQ youth don't have that. When you're young and straight and you're in a new relationship, you can talk about it with your friends and ideally your family. You can talk about how exhilarating it can be. You can talk about any awkwardnesses that come up. And talking about them can help get them resolved, making the relationships better and longer lasting. It's also a learning experience because your parents and friends may support your relationship by offering relationship advice. Being open about your relationship gives you more freedom and support as you figure out how to make the relationship succeed for you and your partner. People may congratulate you for finding someone and they'll be happy for you. They may talk about how you're a cute couple and say that you're a really good match for your partner. You can feel a sense of joy and accomplishment, as if you've become higher in status. When the two of you have a fight or something else goes wrong, you can reach out for help. Parents, friends, teachers, and counselors can be easy for you to talk with because they're comfortable with heterosexuality and heterosexual relationships. But, if you're LGBTQ, your sexuality and relationships may seem foreign and even frightening to straight friends and adults in your life. Being gay or bi, you probably won't have the same support for your queer relationship that straight kids have for theirs. Straightness is very much the norm and default in society, so when you do anything that isn't in line with it, you can be seen as abnormal. This abnormality shows up in many ways. For example, when a parent asks their daughter, when are you going to get a boyfriend? Or remarks that it is just a phase. It distances and disempowers queer youth. As an LGBTQ youth of dating age, you can face issues ranging from having your friends and family unsure about how to give you advice to even losing your friends and family entirely. In the extreme case, the simple fact that you're not straight might permanently fracture relationships with those around you. You shouldn't have to experience the dilemma of choosing between your family or choosing your partner and LGBTQ identity. No one should. But if you're LGBTQ, it can result in the loss of many relationships and a significant aspect of your social network and identity. There are a lot of harmful effects on people's mental and emotional health when these social connections are lost. That's why dating for LGBTQ youth is often characterized by secrecy and a need to lie to those around you. A lot of teenagers already keep their relationship secret from their parents if their parents are strict. LGBTQ youth often do too, but the consequences of having parents find out can be much more severe. If your parents are uncomfortable with queerness, it is a much bigger shock when they find out that you're dating someone of the same sex, let alone just dating in the first place. This puts a lot of pressure on your young relationship. When you go out on a date or just try to have a good time in public, there can be constant anxiety that someone might be watching and out you or a sense of guilt whenever you withhold information from friends and family. Instead of having a good time and enjoying each other's presence, which is the essence of a relationship, you're preoccupied with whether you're being watched, what lies you have to tell to your parents or friends, and how you even act in public. A healthy relationship is supposed to make you feel safe and secure with all the joy and elation that comes with dating. Being anxious about who you date is the opposite of healthy teenage dating, It's even worse when you can't talk about any rocky points you may be experiencing. If you were in a straight relationship, your friends and family would know what kinds of advice to give you, but instead they may feel awkward or judgmental and may not give you any kind of helpful advice. This can make you feel estranged from them. Even if you're out to the people around you, straight people may still not feel comfortable talking about same-sex relationships around you. Whether they're simply not familiar with the unique aspects of LGBTQ dating or are actually hostile to the idea of homosexuality, it can create an uncomfortable situation for you. You may have trouble talking to friends and family because as straight people, they may just not understand your experiences. Often, they might make insensitive comments, intentionally or unintentionally, which makes it difficult for you and your partner to feel safe or secure. If you can't talk with your parents and friends, perhaps you could talk with school personnel, including teachers and guidance counselors. But if you live in a very religious or traditional community, even teachers and other adults at school could be afraid of putting the school in a position of supporting homosexuality or supporting that kind of lifestyle. They could be hostile to you themselves. And it becomes increasingly complicated when neither you nor your partner feels comfortable or safe sharing your experiences with anyone. When you've grown up having internalized the idea that you need to hide an aspect of who you are, it is difficult to break the habit of not opening up to people. So what kinds of things can people do to make dating easier and less risky for LGBTQ use? If you're an LGBTQ teen and you have a supportive family, it's important to educate them. Often, parents find themselves in new territory when you come out to them, and will likely have a lot to learn. A quick internet search is all it really takes to find many guides for your parents and how they can help you as much as possible in your coming out journey. If you have a hostile or even potentially hostile family, it may not be safe for you to even bring up the subject. Only you can make that decision. But if you think it is safe, you can try to test the waters to see how much antipathy they have for homosexuality and see how they react to less personal things like LGBTQ politics, civil rights, ideals, music, and art. If they have a negative reaction, you can kind of show them the side not portrayed in the media. If you're on the edge about whether you should come out or not, you might say that a friend came out and see how your family reacts. Then you'll have a better idea about whether it's safe for you to come out to them. And if you feel like you have no one in your life to talk to about challenges you may be facing in terms of your identity, you should look online. There are thousands of forums dedicated to other LGBTQ teens sharing their struggles, and you can either reach out or just read about how other people cope. There's also the It Gets Better project, It's always important to remember that you are never alone. People care about you and have gone through situations that are similar to yours. Try looking on websites like Quora or Reddit. Even comment sections on YouTube and TikTok videos can have some pretty helpful pieces of advice. Now let's say you're a straight teenager and you have an LGBTQ friend. You should try to be there for them. Keep in mind that they're still the same person you've always known and don't treat them any differently than you treat your straight friends. Make yourself available and don't be judgmental. Be their shoulder to cry on and person to vent to and their wingman. If you're a teacher or another adult in a school, keep in mind how hard school already is for everyone, both mentally and socially. At some point, students are bound to struggle and feel ostracized. Now, try to imagine the magnified stress for LGBTQ students who may be struggling with accepting their own identities, as well as dealing with being ostracized and even bullied. Imagine how difficult it must be if they don't have people to talk to about their identity. You were once a student, and you know that concealing your true self can be draining. But imagine having to hide your sexuality or gender identity so that you are not potentially shunned by classmates. School should be a safe space, and as a teacher or school adult, you should do whatever it takes to make your LGBTQ students comfortable talking to you or other school adults about personal issues. Establishing a School Gay Straight Alliance Club, or GSA, can be a very important first step. By establishing a GSA, you're creating a specific safe space where your students don't have to come out, but where they will be able to find open-minded students and adults who accept them, who may be dealing with the same issues or even both. And finally, if you're a parent and your child or your child's friend comes to you, you should be as supportive as you can and accept them for who they are. Encourage them to tell you how they're feeling and open up the conversation about things like dating. This might be a little uncomfortable at first, but it can be incredibly beneficial for the child. If you're not familiar or comfortable with LGBTQ issues, it can be helpful to find support and a place to go to talk about your child or child's friend, such as a support group for parents and friends of LGBTQ kids. See if there's a local PFLAG group in your area. You can find them online at pflag.org. Joining groups like these can connect you with other parents and help you deal with issues you may be going through. And it can help you understand LGBTQ youth more fully and show you how to be a great ally in their lives. At Outcasting, we've done other pieces that deal with some of these issues, including a discussion about dating while queer in high school and a conversation with parents both of whose grown children are LGBTQ. You can listen to them on our website, outcastingmedia.org. Thanks for listening to Outcasting Overtime from Outcasting Media, creator of Public Radio's LGBTQ youth programs. Outcasting Media is a production of Media for the Public Good, based in New York. This piece was created by the Outcasting team, including Aviram, Brian, Chris, Isha, Justin, Lil, Tim, and me, Vivian. Our executive producer is Mark Sophos. Visit us at outcastingmedia.org to get information about Outcasting, watch Outcasting videos, access our social media links, and listen to Outcasting and related content. Thanks, and thanks for listening.
1: A few years back, IMRU teamed with former Advocate Magazine Editor-in-Chief Ann Stockwell and the LA Gay and Lesbian Center for a senior storytelling competition called Hear Me Out. From David Park Epstein, this was the
8: winner. The title of my story is The Magic of the Moon and the Freedom to Love. It's 1966, three years before Stonewall, the magic of the moon brought me Michael, my first love. We were just 16. I remember him first in the locker room of the gym. Michael's face was not what I first saw. I saw his back with the deep bruise in the shape of a lash. I knew that bruise. My father hit me too, a belt to the back. Three years before Stonewall, I knew the shame beaten into us because of the secret we shared. We wanted to hold another boy and love him in our arms, a boy like us, who would end our pain and heal our shame with his love. And so it would be for Michael and me. We fled to the sea to be free to love, three years before Stonewall, when we were only 16. I remember our bed, our first night in the old gay hotel on Snake Alley in Atlantic City, one block from the Atlantic Ocean. We were only sixteen. Moonlight comes through the window, and I remember your arms, Michael. My hand moves down your belly toward the dream that lives between your legs. We were only sixteen driving to the seashore from high school to the gay hotel that shows porn of blond boys on a beach in California. And everyone is old but us. Old men, some naked, sit in the lobby smoking, and we're sixteen. Fugitives from the world of parents, driven to the ocean by the tug in our bellies. And I can't wait to have him lying next to me. The desk clerk knows we're too young, gives us the room anyway. No driver's license asked to check our age. A double bed, a white cotton blanket, and Michael... In his white cotton underpants. Moonlight on his belly. My teenage hand trembles like the sea. Pulled by the tide of his hard love. Hard in his underpants. My fingers touch his belly. In Atlantic City. A block off the boardwalk. On forbidden snake alley where everyone knows the queers go. We were 16 fugitives from the law, hard dreams of love and freedom alive between our thighs. Life isn't a Hollywood movie, and love stories don't always have perfect endings. It was three years before Stonewall. Michael and me, We were just 16. We never got married. We never grew old side by side. Instead, I went away to college in Pennsylvania. Michael left town to join the army and disappeared into a military base in Texas. But our love and our freedom has never left me. Here I am, after all. Telling you about us, after all these years. He's still alive inside me. And so is the gift he gave me in the moonlight. Now, I put my hand on my heart. That place that knew only pain. It's healed. No bruise. No wound. No shame. Now, there's magic. And there's moonlight. And the freedom to love. I'm David. Thanks for listening.
1: Okay. That's it for tonight. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride. And Rainbow Minute producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. Please follow us on Facebook. At IMRU Radio. And if you are interested in volunteering with IMRU in any capacity, email volunteer at IMRU And a reminder we're a global podcast as well as a show broadcast by KPFK Los Angeles. You can always hear our weekly show posted to KPFK.org. Also catch us at iTunes, Spotify, Breaker. Anchor.fm, Castbox, and Pocket Casts. We close with the latest and possibly the last Randy Rainbow Song parody, commenting on the Trump legacy. Good night.
6: Huh?
1: Look it up.
5: Girl.
7: We had an
5: election that was stolen.
7: Admit, he's cause he's he be up his
4: This was a fraudulent election Who would attempt to rally up a mob And try to stage a coup to steal a fair election?
7: Ooh. Who so far, he couldn't hold his job He's begging like a little bitch Ooh. The loser,
1: the loser
6: It was a landslide election tradition. The loser
9: Stop the steal. Solution.
7: We won the election and it's not fair to take it away from us. How could anyone defend the calls he's made? It strikes on free democracy. Maybe they would finally grow on balls if they'd stop thinking
4: only of their own damn selves. Consider the evidence. Ambition.
2: Ambition.
6: This is my opportunity to stand up.
4: Ambition. Election.
2: This was a fraudulent election
6: Sedition
7: I need 11,000 votes, give me a break
5: He says he only needs
7: 11,000 votes to win He swears they stuffed the ballot box But girl, they didn't Delusion Corruption Confusion Disruption Sedition Election Election. Decision invasion Delusion the election that just occurred, quote, was rigged. The
5: Constitution clearly states it's time that he concede. Oh. Get out. Maybe once they lock him up, he'll finally learn to read. Where? In prison, in prison. Oh, I hear yeah, they do a
4: nice spread. Citizen.
8: Transition. Transition.
4: Nobody knows what the hell is going
8: on.
7: Citizen. We will never concede. Who would attempt to see themselves There, I did it, you happy?
8: Transition.
7: Without sedition, his lies
2: would be as shady as a twittler with no proof.
4: This was a fraudulent election.